So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spending way too much time on social media? Derek here from Conspirituality, and you might be able to break the cycle of doom scrolling on Elon Musk's haunted Twitter by tuning into the Crooked Media podcast offline with John Favreau. I have been a Crooked Media fan since the company was founded, and I'm really excited to be talking about offline because it's a different kind of Sunday show. It's a chance to step outside our social media-fueled news cycles and hear smarter, lighter conversations about how chronically online existence and shapes the way that we live, work, and interact with the world around us. Each week, John Favreau is joined by notable guests like Stephen Colbert, Hassan Piker, ContraPoints, Margaret Atwood, what? All for intimate conversations about how to live happier, healthier lives, both on and offline. New episodes of Offline with John Favreau drop every Sunday wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. I'm Matthew Remsky. You can catch us on Instagram at ConspiritualityPod, and you can access our Monday bonus episodes through Patreon or Apple subscriptions. For today's brief I'm joined by Canadian filmmakers Sean Horlor and Steve Adams to discuss their excellent new documentary called Satan Wants You. It's in theaters now, and it's a film that pulls back the curtain on how Patient Zero of The Satanic Panic, which is a bizarre book called Michelle Remembers, was written, published, and marketed by its authors, the late Lawrence Pazder and his client later wife, Michelle Smith. In episode 151, Satan Wants You Watch Party, Julian and I reviewed the film against the backdrop of our prior coverage of the cultural impact of Michelle Remembers on figures like Teal Swan, as well as phenomena like recovered memory theory and how it continues to haunt some mainstream sectors of what is known as somatic psychotherapy. We also explored how Michelle Remembers has an even more cursed legacy as an influence on today's satanic panic iteration, QAnon. 
Now, we left a lot of questions dangling in that episode, and so I was happy to catch up with Sean and Steve via Zoom on their press tour and hear more about how they dug this story out of its very shallow grave. And I really enjoyed talking with them because it confirmed for me the grace and care with which they approached this fever dream and the families. It changed forever. Now, just a note, I will encourage you to go back and listen to episode 151 for the backstory and some spoilers on the film, because there are a few parts of our conversation where we shorthand things uh, in respect of the time that we had. For instance, we discuss Sean and Steve's attempts to interview Bishop Remy DeRue for the film, but he was in his 90s and he died before they could get the interview filmed. And that's an important point because DeRue originally gave his blessing to the book and also facilitated a visit to Rome where Pazder and Smith brought their BS story to church officials for verification. So to catch up on threads like that, 151 is your ticket. Here's our conversation. Sean Horlor and Steve Adams, thank you so much for joining me here on Conspirituality Podcast. Thank you for having us. Our listeners have our review of the documentary already, so I'm just going to give this to you directly, very briefly. We found it thorough, probing, sensitive, uh, and also very timely, of course. So thanks for that. Thanks for your work. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, we're huge fans, so it's a pleasure to talk to you. Let's start with origin story stuff, but with you guys personally. Um, first of all, like, how old are you both? Are you from Victoria? Did you guys grow up Catholic? What's the story? All of the above. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Victoria after the book was published in 1980. And uh, my family, uh, both my parents were practicing Catholics and left the church uh, before we moved to Victoria uh, from Edmonton. And for me, this is, you know, like Michelle and Larry, uh, spoiler alert for your listeners, lived in a big house overlooking the ocean 10 minutes uh, down the road from my family. Uh, and growing up in Victoria in the 1980s, as a, you know, everyone listening knows something about the satanic panic, you know, a lot. Um, this is like the standard stuff that happened everywhere. Like there, you know, people in black were going to snatch you off the street to uh, murder and sacrifice you. There were stores uh, downtown in Victoria that allegedly had altars where uh, children were murdered and animals were sacrificed. And this is, you know, in like the queer bookstore in town they were satanists this is this is what it was at that time mm -hmm. for me for myself i had grown up in a small town in northern british columbia and we didn't really have a lot of exposure to it um even like media wise we didn't get a lot of channels so we didn't get to see a lot of the the talk shows so i was like largely unfamiliar with the the satanic panic outside of what i saw in the, like in culture um what you'd see on like stranger things or how it was represented with, through dungeons and dragons but I didn't really have an understanding of just exactly the, the scope of what the satanic panic was. Um, and after the book came back into our lives in 2018 um, and we started to, to research it, that's when I really began to, to see just how crazy the story was. Now look what it's done to you. <laughs> you know, this sort of scene of it's in the water in Victoria as you're growing up is incredible. And I... Uh, this really confirms a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who spent some of their childhood growing up in Victoria and 
They knew the story as a kind of folklore. They never thought that it was false. Uh, as a Gen X kid at the time, they also knew where the car crash was supposed to have been. They knew the highway. Uh, they were shocked to find out that it was debunked. It's quite extraordinary that you grew up almost on the movie set of, of this book. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the Malahad Highway where the accident took place. Ross Bay Cemetery, where Michelle was given an, away to Satan in this huge elaborate ceremony or ceremony at nighttime. That's just right, right downtown next to the Parliament buildings. Like it is, and then every year after that, of course, right? It's there's graffiti, there's you know satanic pentagrams on gravestones, broken tombstones, and the rumors circulate again. There's that portion in the film. And this is like real stuff, folks, where, you know, there's rumors spreading that this, the local Satanists uh, who had abducted Michelle originally were going to steal children from the hospital. And for multiple years, police officers had to actually be posted in the hospital to protect the newborns and their mothers. Like it is just you could you can't even make this up because like now people would just think you're telling a fiction or a narrative film. It is just so surreal. Now you come back to the book in 2018, and I'm wondering if that has something to do with meeting up with Sarah Marshall, uh, who becomes a kind of tour guide uh, through the documentary, which I love because I think it's super important that very smart millennials are working so hard to make sense of this story. Uh, was that part of your reintroduction to this book? No, well, we were doing a, a different project in 2018 uh, on books on authors in British Columbia. And our researcher had provided us with 100 books. And midway down the list was Michelle Remembers. I'd never heard of it. Sean thought was like, oh, my God, this book. Okay. And his sister started to have these conversations about it and what it was. And that was what kind of spurred that on. Um, with Sarah Marshall, that her podcast happened during the pandemic, so in 2020, mm -hmm. um, we hadn't listened to it. We were um, we were doing all sorts of other research, and we were deep into like trying to figure out what the story was. And we had like a fairly good understanding of what the the story was. And then we got to listen to her five hour podcast, and that just spurred on a, a whole other level for us because she is one of the smartest people I've ever met. Right. Yeah. And like listening to her talk about it is just brings so much more context and information that I, I'm not even sure that we were able to think about. Though, so if I could say about 2018, you know, like the funny thing for us, that book came across into back into my life and for the first time into Steve's. And this is like right after Pizzagate. Like, I have to say, like you start to and right when QAnon rumors about, you know, Satanists, pedophiles infiltrating the government and Hillary Clinton and John Podesta, all these things that were happening. And then seeing Michelle remembers again, it was that moment where I was like, oh my God, it's happening again. Like this is exactly my childhood happening again. And why is this happening again? And that's sort of like for us was like, no one has ever told a documentary that explored the Michelle remembers story. And we have to do this. Yeah. I empathize or I really connect with you over finding uh, Sarah's treatment along with Michael Hobbs of the book as incredibly perceptive. I think uh, the two jaw drop, I mean, many jaw dropping moments, but two that stand out are her sussing out from Michelle's descriptions in the transcripts uh, that she's probably describing the twilight zone of a DNC in some of those dream sequences and then the other one is where uh, there's one point closer to the end of the sequence where Michelle is telling uh, 
Larry that she really wants everything to stop. And Sarah hears a double meaning in this, uh, you know, appeal, which is, I want the memories to stop, but I also need this process, this dialogue, perhaps this fiction making process, which I'm not in control of, I want it to stop. And her sensitivity there, it was just, I think that opened a doorway into uh, also empathizing with a story in a way that I never had before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, I think one of the like the aha moments for us was when we actually got the the tape with the therapy recording on it. Uh. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you that. How on earth did you recover the audio tapes, and what did you first think when you heard them? For us, it was a, a lengthy research process. Uh, the acknowledgments in the back of the book is where we started. There was a, a lot of reaching out to people. Um, we said if you didn't want to have your name published or anything, you could submit them to the, us anonymously. And that's what happened. Towards the end of the editing process of the film, we we got one of the tapes in the mail. And that was like, I'll never forget that day because it was a moment when like we all gathered ground. We all got that. We got it digitized very quickly. And us plus the producers were all listening to it and our jaws were just on the ground. That's amazing because you, you didn't have a tape recorder. You had to you had to take it somewhere to be digitized first. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we also had to be really careful with it because it was a really old tape and you could tell it was something that had been recorded on a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, so we just wanted to be really careful. It was like a, a literal artifact for us. And it was like originally two reel to reel tapes that had been combined onto a cassette in 19 in the late 1970s. Like this is something that is and, you know, there's like a lot of these tapes existed or still exist is the thing right but so many copies were made there were so many transcribers oh really oh yeah to actually type out the therapy sessions that larry then took and cut and paste into the book like it's quite the process you probably didn't have time to cover that aspect of it because my impression was that charl was the primary transcriber but she was one of them but but many people had to participate or did i just miss that in the film it's cheaty so michelle's friend she, oh sorry yes yeah yeah it was larry's literary assistant in addition to being their friend and she was the one who sort of you know helped the taping process between the audio tapes to the or sorry the reel-to-reel tapes to cassette and helped send them out to transcribers and she really dived down into that whole it's a quick quick scene in the film you know there's so much going on yeah yeah right what do you what do you focus yeah. on sent <laughs> everywhere too it wasn't just like they didn't keep them very tightly like they were sent out to like uh, some schools um for listening they were sent to like churches and different religious institutions like they the tapes were widespread so there there's more tapes out there but we could only get our hands on one so when pastor says uh oh the tapes are being studied by the vatican he might be partially telling the truth yeah and, oh, yeah, and sure. it, i mean the whole transcription so the 600 hours of therapy uh, sessions that they recorded was turned into one giant transcript that was given to Bishop Remy DeRue, the the Bishop of Victoria. Right. And one who has that, that exists somewhere as well. He, we were talking to him. Oh, the people we have talked to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you spoke to Bishop DeRue. We, and a sister, uh, sister Margaret, who also was friends and worked with the bishop, the, the, like, you know, it's, it's a 90 minute doc. There's only so much that we could put in. He passed away 
like he was actually, you know, he was in his 90s and he passed away before we could actually have the full conversation and talk to him about this. What was your sense of how he was going to respond to what had become of this story? He had spoken to another journalist a few years before we were kind of, so like probably like around 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked to her about her conversation and he was like pretty frank and he he spoke openly about it. And it didn't seem like he was like keeping a, a lot to himself within like what they were talking about. So, I mean, we were hopeful. Yeah, we were hopeful that he'd be able to speak to us, but unfortunately... Time wasn't on our side. Incredible. Well, that was my question about, did you get in touch with church officials and did they have anything to say about it? So was there anybody else in that category who was able to speak on behalf of the church's influence on this on this book? Sister Margaret would not talk to us. So and this is the thing. I mean, if you, you, we go into sort of the belief and the layers of belief that allows people to believe these conspiracies and these rumors, like if you have those pre-existing beliefs, if you're Catholic, if you're devout, this is still, you know, for a lot of the people who are involved in this story, this is still real. Yeah. Right. In other words, it worked. It worked. The story worked. You know, going back to the technology of, of reel to reel tapes, are, were the, was the actual tape taken from reel to reel and packed into cassette or was there a translation process in between there as well? That's really in the weeds, but that sounds fascinating to me. From what we could hear on the cassette tape, there is quite a lot of ambient noise that we had to actually help reduce so you could actually hear what was happening for the film. My guess is that it was actually like the reel-to-reel was playing and then a cassette was actually taping. Oh, right. Bit. But I, yeah, we'd have to do some more investigation to confirm. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about what you've accomplished is that, um, you know, the whole film is about memory and it's about how memory is distorted or it gets filled with noise or we make of it what we will. And then this is part of your memory, especially Sean growing up where you grew up and you, you cut some very specific images into my brain that evoked the time. Uh, whoever styled that office that you did the recreation is was just, they were a master. I don't know if you did that or if you hired some genius, but like the, the whole thing is caught between nostalgia and morbidity. Uh, on the back of Pazder's office, there's, there's this, you know, three foot tall Virgin Mary glazed in plaster or ceramic. It looks like it's kind of a, a cheesy one from like a mid-century church. And it's standing beside the big old reel-to-reel tape recorder. How important was it for you to just evoke the period and how hard was it to do? So important. I mean, part of our process for this that, you know, we knew that Larry had videotaped the sessions. So there's actually video not videotape, sorry, but film. So he shot it on a film camera and in addition to the reel-to-reel audio. And there, you know, earlier on when we we're investigating, People magazine did a profile and sent reporters to Victoria to, to speak to Michelle and Larry. And in that People magazine article from 1980 is a still of Michelle on the therapy couch with the two pillows and the plaid back print uh, of her in a trance. And this for us was like, we took this to our production designer and, you know, said, use this to recreate 
the world and Juan Gonzalez was our production designer and his whole team really ran with it. Like we knew that there was video that we searched and searched and searched to find and could not get. And then when you're talking about recreations in the stock, this is why we did that because it exists somewhere. And this is our take on what is actually real. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like it's shot on eight millimeter from that era in some ways, like you also filtered it properly. Um, it's lit in this kind of sepia glow. Um, yeah, it's really, and, and there's something about it that I think it's so important to evoke the age because we're talking about a generation of people uh, and where they come from. And it's very, very pre-digital and, there's so much work and labor involved in getting the story out and transcribing it and 600 hours of tapes, you know, it's like, it it was an incredible production. And so I think it's really makes sense that you had to recreate in real time, this real life set. Amazing stuff. I think the other thing for us, a lot of people with doc are not, they're not big fans of including recreations, but for us, we we needed to visualize um, various aspects. And one of the things that we really wanted to to show was how the the patient doctor relationship started uh, in kind of a, a regular fashion. Um, but they slowly get closer and closer to closer together until they're cuddling on rubber mats um, at all sorts of different hours of the evening. Um, and it was really important for us to show that you you get that subtext within the within the text, but you don't actually. I, I think it would be hard for a viewer to to understand just how close they were coming together. Um, so that was like a, another reason for us to to do the recreases the way we did, and that they're conducting therapy with Michelle's top off, wearing a bra. Like this is in that photo from People magazine. It's like we're not making this up. This has actually happened, right? Yeah. Not only are you not making it up, but they presented that to People magazine, and Larry is filming it. Presumably, those films are around, and he was going to do something with them, and that. I did not know about the film. That puts another kind of spin on the kind of spectacle that he was actually uh, engaged in, whether he was conscious of it or not. Um, You know, your sourcing was incredible. You were able to speak with Marilyn, uh, Larry's um, first wife. You were able to speak with Teresa, his daughter. They were very generous with their time and story. Had they been waiting for a long time to tell it? I think, I don't know if they had been waiting. I just think that they were ready. <laughs> um, the the thing that always stands out to me the most is uh, this was something that took over their lives for 10 to 15 years. Like they they were deep in it. Um, for Teresa, it was during some of her most formative years. Mm-hmm. Um, for Mary, Mary Lynn, it was her, um, it was her first marriage. It was with her childhood sweetheart. Um, it was this divorce that actually had the ability to ruin her life. So she had to like really make sure that she was doing all the investigative work and getting all of the receipts and making sure that she was building a case that made her be able to keep her children and keep her house. Like Larry wanted to take the house out from under her and her four kids. Like it's just, mm-hmm. sorry, I kind of, no, 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 but that's really good information. So like she, she was really on that. Like she was making sure that she had a very solid case. Um, and in turn, I mean, nobody had really like what anytime an investigator would reach out to her, uh, she was always forthcoming with the information, um, but nobody had ever asked her about her side of the story and if she wanted to participate. And when Sean first got in contact with Marilyn um, and called her on the phone and said what he was doing, she 
it was like no time had passed. She got on the phone and they spoke for an hour solid. And it was just like, she gave all the information and doing the interview, it was basically the same thing. Like she, she knew everything front to back. It's amazing to hear the detail about him wanting the house. I'm wondering, do you know this type of Catholic guy who is willing to completely fuck up? Like, absolutely trash his professional standards uh, to betray the the church that he says he's devoted to. But that's not enough. Like, he had to also try to win in terms of assets. Like, that's a very particular type. Did How did you wind up feeling about Larry after doing this? You know what? I mean, it takes two to tango. That's sort of what I feel about this story. And, you know, there's in addition to what you see in the film, and honestly, like, you know, the the family members, as Steve was mentioning, had never gone on public record before. So a lot of this was new to us. It was new to Sarah Marshall, who you mentioned earlier, hearing the family side change some things for her and how she thought about this story as well. Right. Um, in addition to them, there are, you know, I conducted 40 audio interviews. So there's a lot more people, childhood friends who live next door, a woman who lived with Michelle when they were, you know, in their 20s. And Michelle first started seeing Larry in 1972 for four years before any of the satanic stuff happened. Right. There are the publicists who traveled with them when Michelle Remembers came out. There's the publisher's wife and the publisher himself, who was the uh, Thomas Congdon, who was the editor of Jaws, which also covers this story. There's so many different layers and a lot of it does come out in the film but you know you hear all these stories and it does definitely influence me where you know it's hard to say larry is to blame for this or michelle is it's for me it's both of them acting together that created this huge societal failure right that affected millions of people around the world right well let me go there then because michelle smith declines to be interviewed what was on your question list for her? And have you heard anything from her or maybe her lawyers since uh, this has dropped? We haven't heard anything from her. I mean, we, we contacted her twice, uh, just making sure that we were doing our due diligence to make sure that she wanted to, if she wanted to say her piece, we were going to give her the time to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, she made it very clear to us that she didn't want to participate, which we understand. Um, but I mean, the, the question list is a laundry list. It would have been a fascinating interview to, mm-hmm. to finally get her perspective on what had happened. Um, and how does she feels now? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, she, she could have, she could recant. She could say that it's not true. She could say that Larry did it. She could say a, a multitude of things, but at this point in her life, she's not ready to do that. Uh, I got to ask you about uh, a kind of penny drop moment where, uh, Michelle's sister describes the Smith family chaos growing up, where it just becomes a very mundane story of maybe something is being recalled here, but it's not being recalled in a transparent way. And that was also sort of part of having this very strong sense, listening to the tapes, that Smith we use this metaphor in our review of the film that Smith was kind of pulling a bit of a Kaiser Soze uh, role on Larry during the therapy where, 
you know, who knows what she's going through, but it does seem that she's very talented at pulling details together or out of these so-called memories that would appeal to his sense of devotionalism, that would appeal to his worldview. Did you get that same sense as well? Do you, do you feel that that's fair, that as much as he needed that story, that she also wanted him to have it? A hundred percent. And, you know, like, it's interesting, too, you're you're talking about how the story unfolds in therapy. Uh, we show some of the home videos that Larry shot while he was a doctor in uh, Western Africa, uh, these uh, tribal ceremonies that he took as a you know, they're satanic and cult-like, and th that formed his worldview that bled into the book. Those videos, he showed, you know, we heard from everyone, he showed those to everyone, like Chidi, uh, Cheryl, uh, Michelle's sister remembers watching them. So like, the, you, you know, like, and we, the, there's that section of the film where Charles Ennis, the Wiccan police detective, sort of goes through and picks apart, and all our other experts do too, the passages in the book where, you know, the, something happened in the video that Michelle then relays in the therapy sessions. And it's like, you know, for me, crystal clear that you must have shown those videos to her and she fed that material back to him, maybe under hypnosis, though they claim that she was never hypnotized. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, and like you, you're telling a story that he wants to hear and he's telling a story she wants to hear. And... But it's also, they're doing like intensive therapy. They're doing six hours a day. There's no way that somebody can come up with all this information just all the time. So she's reading books. She's like doing the research and then she's bringing it back into the therapy sessions. And she's like saying no more, but he's like, I need more. So she's like, okay, I'm going to read the book and give it to you. Like, <laughs> And they are falling in love, obviously. And they are, they, this is part of how they do it. This is their story and, and it happens to be recorded and then it becomes a piece of media. And then it, when it, be, when it becomes a piece of media, uh, then there's the impact. And I wanted to ask you about all of the archival footage that you went through and that you ended up putting into the film that shows these journalists, uh, Valerie Pringle, um, Don Heron of the CBC, uh, interviewing them, really just handing them the mic. And, and now you're saying, oh, well, nobody came to Marilyn for her story. But also none of those people pushed back on anything that they said. Um, so what did it feel like listening to journalists just not do their job? It was like everybody was Geraldo. Yeah, I think specifically, I mean, you mentioned Valerie Pringle, that clip that we include in the film is from, you know, the midday new news in Toronto, where she's talking about eating feces and uh, sex cults and sacrificing children, just like you talk about, you know, Chernobyl at that time, right? Like in a flat newscaster, here's what's going on, people. She does say with the huge shoulder, shoulder pads, she says that people find that very disturbing or something like that. It's just so anodyne. It's incredible. For, for me, it's like, yes, it's you, you look at those media clips, but you have to understand the whole chain that led to that, right? So you have Michelle looking at this as the, you know, uh, patient zero of the satanic panic, her saying that she is having these dreams and recovered memories, her doctor who she trusts saying this is real, it's happening to you, going to the church who's saying these are also real, we're going to investigate them and take them to the Pope and have the church actually saying this is true to police officers then 
also saying, hey, look, this is book is physical evidence that this is happening. Let's investigate crimes in our communities. And then the lack of evidence is evidence because they're Satanists. And then the whole psychiatric profession saying we're also looking into this. Like you have to like when you look at it that way, when it gets to the mainstream news, of course, they're like, well, all these all these pillars of society are saying this is true. They're not questioning it. Yeah. How much time does Valerie Pringle have with her producer to get the story in that morning or the day before and say, hmm, I wonder what I want to ask and how, because as you're saying, it's been pre-vetted. It's institutionalized already. Like if, if, if Congdon published it, then why not? Yeah. And I, I still think like, even with Valerie Pringle, we couldn't include the whole interview, but she, she does kind of like push back a little bit, but even those pushbacks doesn't matter because like the other shit that she's saying is still so like crazy that people are just like, gonna want. <laughs> and, and the guy who's, I mean, I love your talking heads. You really collected a wonderful bunch. Uh, Charles Ennis, as you mentioned, uh, who knew that Vancouver had a Wiccan cop, um, Blanche Barton of the church of Satan. And then the FBI guy, Ken Lanning, a uh, fantastic find who's able to say, oh, yeah, uh, I was in neck deep. I was supposed to do this stuff. And uh, boy, uh, it was really hard to believe. And I was just I, I think is the only time I felt bad for uh, an FBI dude um, because he was clearly <laughs> over his head at the time uh, and really wants to walk it back. Um, I, I wanted to ask, though, did you come across anyone uh, who wanted to speak to, I mean, maybe this is another documentary, but uh, people who would have spoken to the direct impact of the book on their lives, because, you know, there's like thousands of children whose parents were obsessed with the book. It really disrupted their lives. Um, I mean, that's part of the context here. Did you hear it from anybody like that? We came, I mean, Kelly Michaels is somebody that we uh, feature in the film, her case. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Her case is, as all of them are, just you read it, she actually went to prison and it is just shocking with no no physical evidence, horrendous crimes that she's accused of involving children. Five years in jail, comes out, and her life is just, you know, like you are not the same after that. And for us, like we did want to, Debbie Nathan, the, inve the investigative journalist, was going to connect us to... Uh, to Kelly Michaels and we, you know, it's a 90 minute film. We really want to focus on the origin story of the satanic panic. Mm -hmm. I think it, that is a different film and there, you know, there's possibly a, a series where you could look at all of these cases and look at the different adult survivors versus the daycare trials versus the West Memphis three. There's so many different layers and so many different experiences of terrible that happen to people. Well, I'm glad that you brought up Debbie Nathan because that was my next question. Uh, she, you know, investigative journalist superstar uh, who ends up in your film giving a kind of elegy for the apparent ineffectiveness of her reporting at the time. And so I wonder how it felt for both of you to to hear that. And, you know, perhaps by contrast, what might your highest hopes be for this film? I mean, when we heard her say that, it was like a dispirity moment. It was like one of those moments where you you try so hard and you put so much effort into trying to get the proper information in front of people and realizing that people just will bypass that and go towards the the thing that's the the easiest information to consume, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and to see her just to feel that way was really hard um it, it made me think a lot about like what we were making um what we were doing it made me think about current culture um and how people are willing to to believe the, the wackiest shit without any sort of evidence um and it just made me wonder if like, this is part of the human psyche and that like you're it's going to be something that's always going to exist within human nature and if we can ever really like change that our, our film has been interesting. I mean, you have a great story about Teapot Times. <laughs> so like when we were at Hot Docs for the Canadian premiere in Toronto, this article ran, I think, immediately after the premiere in Utah or involving a case in Utah where a woman uh, in 2023 is claiming to be a satanic ritual abuse survivor. Uh, and this is and then specifically mentions the film. Our film is why she's come forward with her truth. Uh, that this happened to her and this is real and there are Satanists and our film is wrong to, to, in, the, in the Epoch Times. And for this to, for us to actually see that, I'm like, wow, we're per perpetuating the cycle again by creating m media that's debunking what happened 40 years ago. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, I can see why Debbie, you know, Debbie Nathan, her work helped stop the satanic panic in combination with Ken Lanning, uh, Charles Ennis, all of these, Elizabeth Loftus, all these people who do speak in the film. It stopped, like it wound down and people realized this wasn't true and it's all made up. The majority of people, right? So she did do that, but I can understand her feelings for it to return and that, you know, the people just fall into the same yeah. behaviors and the yeah. same traps and it's... What do you do? <laughs> well, one thing that you do is you record the history, which is what you've accomplished. And I also hear you say in relation to uh, Debbie's comments, but also uh, the woman that comes forward for this this article in Epoch Times, is that there are hard limits to the tango between, you know, the bunk and the debunk, that there's going to be a lot of people who will harden in response to your treatment. Uh, and in some ways, you might have to be satisfied with knowing that part of what you're doing is you're helping, you know, people like me stay sane, right? Like that, that the, that, that people who actually care about the effects of uh, conspiracy theories on the possibility for a reasonable politics, for example, that we actually need to good documentation for what has actually happened in order to support our lives and our work. Um, but actually addressing people who will say that your film is a, is a piece of counter propaganda that requires something else entirely it's like it's it's it has to be outside probably of the discourse of well this is what really happened um and i i don't know what that is do you guys have any ideas <laughs> steve <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i mean my brain goes to fiction my brain goes to to uh to the video games that my children play like it, it it just it's like this is what i'm struggling with actually on our podcast and and in the rest of my work is okay you showed this thing to not be true and you even gave reasons for why it happened and you expressed empathy for why people got sucked in uh and now what uh now what because you know another sort of tiktok platform has opened up dedicated to promoting the thing that you're saying is harmful to public health and so yeah i i 
I'm always like over my shoulder. There's like, okay, what kind of thing can I make uh, that would be as effective as Michelle remembers, but in reverse? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what kind of positive bullshit could I make up with my therapist? Uh, <laughs> that would have a healing effect upon the world. Uh, yeah. Well, we can, we can get together and talk about that later. Uh, but it's a pleasure to speak to you both. I'm really happy for the work that you've done. I hope you don't get too much blowback for it. Uh, and I hope you're sleeping well and all of that. Thank you. Thanks, so much yeah, for having thanks us. for this discussion. It's been really great to talk about this with you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you both. And thank you for listening to another episode of Conspirituality Podcast. We'll catch you soon. Conspirituality.